Hello, I'm Jonathan Dimbleby. Thanks for taking the time to download this edition of Any Questions from BBC Radio 4. Welcome to Cambridgeshire and the ever-expanding cathedral town of Peterborough. Its growth in significant measure due to migration, with a little under 25% of its 200,000 population being born abroad. We're the guests here of Ormiston Bushfield School, a secondary academy which is housed in state-of-the-art buildings and ranked among the city's top four performers at GCSE. Adorning one of its walls, education is the most powerful weapon which you can use to change the world. Nelson Mandela. On our panel, former Education Secretary David Blunkett, been in the House of Lords since 2015 when he stood down as an MP after 28 years in which he also served as Home Secretary. James Cleverley's just been appointed Deputy Chairman of the Conservative Party. He's a brave man, not only for that fact, but because he's also been on John Pienaar's Radio 5 live show where he took part in an excruciating game called Snog, Marry and Avoid. He chose Theresa May as his snog Yvette Cooper as his spouse, and Isabel Oakshot as the person he'd most like to avoid. Well, so far, he's now failed at all three, I guess, because I imagine he hasn't tried it on with Theresa May. Yvette Cooper is certainly happily married, as far as we know. Um, And Isabel Oakshot is up here with him on the panel. Um, Is it as bad as you feared, Mr Cleverley? It turned out to be significantly better than I had feared. Excellent. That's a relief. Communist and co- communist. I can't think of anyone. I can't think of anyone I know less like a communist. The columnist and commentator Isabel Oakshot's a former political editor of the Sunday Times and co-author with the Tor- Tory Party's mega donor Lord Ashcroft of a biography about David Cameron, to which I will give no more publicity except to say it caused a great deal of political ordure to hit the fan. <laughs> Alongside Lord Ashcroft again, she's writing another book about Britain's armed forces. Readers are to be issued with flak jackets. (laughs) Molly Scott Cato was elected to the European Parliament in 2014 as the South West's first ever Green MEP. She has a life alongside politics, singing, basket making and bodging. Is that that a green cultural activity or just repairing things badly? That is fulfilling my green stereotyping by going to the woods and making chairs without power tools. Aha, got it. Our panel. And to our first question, please. Becky Selig. The BBC's World at One today reported that Germany sells six times more to China than Britain does. How do panellists square this with their Brexit beliefs? James Cleverley. Well, the the membership of the European Union has not, in legal terms, precluded Britain from uh, trading internationally. But quite understandably, through the 40 years that we have been a member of the EU, we have very much focused our attention on the continent. I'm uh, my mother was from Sierra Leone. I'm an international an internationalist at heart. I've always wanted Britain to be an international trading country, and even if we haven't been legally precluded from doing so, we've been dissuaded from doing so. Um, what we now see with the Prime Minister going over to China, signing billions of pounds worth of trade deals and inward investment programmes, is that we are already changing our attitudes towards global trade. We have. Uh, we have outperformed the global average in terms of trade over the last 12 months. This is before we've left the EU. And so it's, a, I think, a change of attitude that has been the really 
important takeaway from our decision to leave the European Union. Is it a change of attitude, forgive me, from the one that was held by Lord Heseltine when he was uh, President of the Board of Trade and in, whenever it was, 1996, took 100 business people uh, to China to raise funds? And then the golden age, as I think David Cameron and George Osborne called it, is, is that a change in attitude or is it just trying not to fall further behind and you're already falling behind in relation to 2015 in sales to China? No, we've already, we've, we've seen a step change in the British, uh, British people's attitude this time two years ago. No one would have uh, been speaking about international trade in the way that we do now. It is now a regular topic of conversation on high streets, in pubs uh, and in schools and places like this. I think it's a really, really positive thing. We are going to maintain a strong trading relationship with the EU. I'm very pleased to hear that. But there is a whole wide world out there and we are now getting much more engaged in talking to it. Do you believe, just one more thing, do you believe that China will be more enthusiastic about trading with the United Kingdom outside the EU with a population of 65 million and where the UK has been a sort of gateway into Europe than directly with the EU with a population of 500 million? We'll do better? I think, I, I think it, uh, it, it very much will do because actually once we leave the EU, we can set our own regulatory framework, we can set our own tax framework, we can make ourselves an agile and adaptable trading nation. I think it's really interesting that the, the uh, point implicit in your question is the UK is one of the largest economies in the world and we shouldn't just see ourselves as a gateway into Europe. The EU did a trade deal with Canada, they didn't see it as a gateway into the United States of America. They saw it as a significant trading partner in its own right, and that's the position we should be taking. David Blunkett. For those who didn't hear the world at one, the figure was just over 12 billion that we sell to China, uh, compared with 60 billion for Germany. Part of that is that the Germans are extremely good at exporting and have been for some considerable time. Their economy has been based on it. Um, part of it is that we as a a country have not concentrated uh, our fire enough in terms of international trade outside the European Union. The, the tragedy for us at the moment, because I don't have to square this circle, by the way, to answer the question directly, because I was in favour of us staying in Europe and being a global trading nation as well. I didn't see the two as being in any way contradictory. The tragedy at the moment is that Liam Fox, the uh, tra trade uh, Minister was saying that as our trade with Europe was falling, we needed more global trade. Well, how is it that our trade with Europe is falling at a time when sterling euro ratio is very much in our favour? We should actually be increasing our exports into Europe and going for world trade as well. The other part of this equation, which is bizarre, is of course that we, we have as part of the European Union, already got major agreements with other parts of the world, which make up, together with the European Union, around 70% of world trade. So we're, we're trying now to get into the other 30% and to increase what we do with nations like China, which are growing at a phenomenal rate, and we're, we're behind the curve. So the, the challenge, I think, for all of us, including those of us who wanted to stay in Europe, is a massive deep breath, a, an electric shock to our nation so that we start producing things that we currently import and we start exporting things that we stopped exporting a long time ago. Can you see that in, in due course, if, if what you've just described occurs, that trade will recover with 
China to the point where it will be a clear advantage that Britain is outside the EU rather than inside? No, I, I think we need to do it because it's vital that we are able to sell our goods abroad and to balance our payments in a way that we don't at the moment. I'm so old that I remember Harold Wilson and the balance of payments in the 1960s. My goodness me, we'd love a trade deficit of several hundred million at the present time because it amounts to billions. So it's a challenge for all of us, in or out, we've got a challenge to get into the growing, the greatest trading nation of 20 years' time, which will be China. There is this big gap, Isabel Oakley, in the sales from Germany to China in comparison with British sales. Um, how do you square that with your Brexit beliefs? Well, I think Brexit is a huge opportunity and too often, in fact, pretty much all the time at the moment, and in fact, since the result of the referendum, it is being presented as a gigantic problem and a headache. And we must be incredibly naive if we think the rest of the world doesn't notice this. You know, right now, we look as if we're a bit of a basket case. And that is absolutely not where we should be in terms of the image we're projecting. So I think it's fantastic that Theresa May is getting out there and she was in China um, pressing the case for trade. But I think it's a great pity that it's 18 months since the Brexit vote and, you know, only now are we making these high-profile visits. I know Liam Fox is out there doing this, but rather too quietly, I think. I think we need to be much more uh, robust and positive about things. And you know what? I'd get the royals involved. Why aren't we sending them out and round to drum up the case for Britain? They I think that. it's they very do, exciting. Me, they, they do that all the time, don't they? They're always out there dr- trying to drum up business in countries around the world. They've been, no. been doing it since the Queen came to the throne. Well, I think we're a bit queasy about it. You know, and perhaps right now... So you've got to be. Yeah, you you do have to be. Maybe not Air Miles Andy. I'll give you that one. (laughs) Um, uh, Just one more thing. You say you say you're talking about you should be optimistic. Where's the evidence for what you say that why we should be optimistic rather than just the aspiration to be optimistic? Well, I don't think you could possibly expect us to have a pile of evidence before we've left. That would just be ridiculous. And and quite uh, on the reverse side of the argument, where's the evidence that it's all going to go terribly wrong? And I think there's a real um, problem here with this idea that for people who voted Brexit that they've made some kind of cold, hard economic calculation. And actually, it's all about the number at the bottom of a ledger book. For many people, in fact, I probably hazard for most people who voted for Brexit, it isn't ultimately about whether we're a little bit better off or a little bit worse off. It is an act of faith, which is about our sovereignty, our future, and being able to control our destiny. You, you, you say it's an act of faith, and you say, where's the evidence? What do you make of the uh, Brexit analysis, economic analysis, that was done for ministers across, across departments? Is this the BuzzFeed thing? Which that, came uh, out in BuzzFeed. Which ranges from what, uh, if, if, this, if it's on WTO terms, uh, lower economy by 8%. If, even if you stay very close to, it's um, 
Because they're so brilliant at predicting these things, aren't they? They're, all these predictions so far have come out absolutely spot on, not. I, I give that no credibility. I give that no credibility. Well, all the predictions about, you know, the des- I, we barely need to go over it. Everybody in this audience is familiar with the ludicrous arguments of Project Fear that have not come to pass. So I'm keeping the faith. I think that we've got a great future ahead of us. Molly Scott Cato. <laughs> The figure that stood out for me from the report on the world at one was that we um, currently export 3% of our exports to China compared to 50% to the EU. And that just demonstrates with a simple statistic how very important our relationship with the European Union is. Because our economy is now completely integrated. That's not surprising. We've been part of the same market for, for 40 years now. And the other interesting figure is that Germany exports three times as much to China as we do. So it's clearly not our membership of the European Union that's preventing us from exporting more It's six China. times. So I think it's more than three it's times. Much, much, much it's, more it's six than times. Is it? Okay. Well, that was um, I think I blame Simon Jack for that then. I think that was what I, I, I did. I don't think Simon Jack ever gets anything um, wrong. Well, <laughs> the anyway, BBC. here's another figure. Nine billion in trade deals. That was apparently what was announced today. But uh, an interesting comparison is that in the whole of 2016, we only exported 17 billion pounds worth to China. So suddenly in three days, we agreed deals worth just as much. And I have to say, to me, this isn't so much about global Britain as it is about global theatre. It's essentially going out and posturing in the world. I'm not really very interested interested in that. When I'm concerned, what I'm concerned with is defending the jobs of people that work and live in the Southwest. For example, the people that work in the, the Honda factory I visited recently in Swindon, they absolutely need us to stay in the single market to preserve those jobs. They also need us in the customs union because so many components come in in order to be made up into cars at the factory. And, and is I that think compatible? Is that, in your view, saying inside the single market, inside the customs union, compatible with that majority, albeit a small majority, who voted to leave the European Union? Well, my own view is that a lot of this complexity and a lot of the detail about what the impact might be on our economy, on our trade, on our jobs, was simply not clear at the point people voted. It was an empty prospectus in many ways. As we go through the negotiations, we're seeing much more clearly what Brexit means, and that's why the Green Party's position is when we see what the reality of Brexit is. It's not about keeping the faith. It's not about rhetoric. It's about really the the future of our country and of our economy, and when we see more clearly what that means, we have an absolute democratic right to have our say on the final deal in a referendum. Speaking of democratic rights, any answers after the Saturday broadcast of this programme is for anyone who is listening to this programme uh, who would like to ring the programme. 03700 100 444 is the number. The line's open instantly at 12.13. I happen to know they have been latterly extremely busy. Worth getting in early, therefore. You can email any.answers at bbc.co.uk. Tweet hashtag BBCAQ and you can follow us at BBC Any Questions. And we can go to our next. Joy Harris. What should the government be doing to ensure licence payers' money is used equitably between male and female BBC staff? This, of course, has been a huge issue and discussed at great length in the Culture Select Committee, where BBC bosses were hauled up before the Culture Select Committee to give, as it were, an account of themselves. Uh, the report done by PricewaterhouseCoopers for the BBC, which has been accepted by the BBC, um, if, I'm, if I'm right, shows that there is a, a 9% gap across the board between male and female staff, which apparently is half that, however, of the national average of 18%. The BBC has said it's got, that 9% gap has got to close. 
but goes on to say that the issue is one of, uh, of, of equal pay for equal work, as well as the fact that there is this gap. Mary, Scott Cato. It's Molly. Um, Sorry, I, Molly. I was really impressed, I think, by the level of anger and the level of competence that, that Carrie Gracie showed when she gave evidence to the Parliamentary Committee. And what she said is that the BBC is not in the market of selling toothpaste or tyres, but is actually selling truth. And for a corporation like that, when you find you've made a mistake, what you have to do is come clean and be honest about it. And to employ PricewaterhouseCoopers to produce a report that says there isn't a problem with gender pay, it just looks like a white and they didn't bother to consult the women in the BBC who have organised themselves to campaign about this. And, I mean, we all love the BBC. We love the public service broadcasting, and we pay for it. So we should, you know, have a chance to, to talk about how they, they behave and how, how the corporation works. But I think, personally, I'm very disappointed. Not, I mean, I'm disappointed about the unequal pay, but I'm particularly disappointed in the way the BBC's dealt with this. And I think to a lot of people who pay their licence fee, it's really quite shocking to see the enormous salaries some people are earning. So I've got a fairly simple proposal, which I can announce here on the BBC, which is that nobody who works at the BBC should be paid more than 10 times the average wage, which is 24,000. And I think that would mean some people would be paid less, but there would certainly be enough spare money to make sure that there was a much more equal pay structure at the end of it. Deputy Chair of the Conservative Party, what should the government be doing, uh, Joy Harris asks. Well, one of the things that I'm uh, pleased to see is that we're discussing this issue. And the reason we're discussing this issue is because government took action and made it essential for organisations to publish their gender pay gap. And if they hadn't have done that, this would never have come out in the open. I think it's very disappointing that there is a, uh, such a gulf between uh, women's pay and men's pay, particularly in those examples where, uh, as we saw with the overseas uh, correspondents, they are doing exactly the same uh, job. I'm hugely disappointed to see that. I was then quite shocked to see that uh, the initial response was to reduce the pay of some of the uh, male presenters, which for me begs two questions. One, uh, wouldn't it, because there are fewer women presenters than male presenters, wouldn't it have been fairer to bump up the pay of the female presenters rather than bring down the pay of the male presenters? And the other point is that we're always told the BBC has to pay these huge salaries, otherwise we'd lose this talent. And then at the first sniff of grape shot, they reduce the salary of the men that they've told us would run away to, I'm guessing, the alternative uh, nationwide public broadcaster. Um, so Lord, Lord, I, I, Hall, Lord Hall did make it clear in his evidence that while there was a real market in entertainment and maybe in sport as well, he recognised that the market which had been there in the early years of this century when other broadcasting news organisations were hiring and paying a lot of money to get people, that that market has significantly shifted, yeah. which is why uh, there is no longer a, yeah. a highly competitive market for, for in news. I think that the, the uh, openness that the, uh, the, the requirement to publish gender pay uh, has, has, has generated has been a fundamentally good thing. And I have to say, I'm going to polish uh, my little party political halo as the uh, deputy chair of the Conservative Party. The Conservative MP's staff, there is a gender pay gap, I'm sorry to admit that, and uh, men are paid, on average, less than the women who are employed by Conservative MPs in Parliament. 
Sorry, the, the men who are employed by MPs are paid less than the women. On average. There is a gender pay gap and it's in favour of women. But how do you explain that? Um, I can only assume that we have a number of uh, highly talented women, many of great Maybe, maybe the women experience. are in senior positions to the men. More senior positions. In certainly my private office, I have three members of staff, two women and a man, uh, two women and a man, and the women are both happen to be more senior and therefore in my own personal office... Because, say, because a, a, a lot, is it not the case? A lot depends on where you are and what yeah, your yeah. role is in any company. Absolutely. Um, uh, if, Absolutely. You know, if you're at the top of the company, even if you're only paid ten times as much as it were, um, yeah. that may be the day for some big private companies. Yeah. Um, and if you're paid ten times as much, it may be that someone who's paid five times as much is in the in the middle rank as a woman, therefore you get a oh, pay, absolutely. So, gender pay gap. So it is, it is illegal to discriminate on gender. On sex, we, that, that is the that is not what we're talking about. What we're talking about is is how good or how bad an organisation is in promoting women, in supporting women, in helping them back into the workforce if they've taken uh, uh, maternity leave, for example. That's the question we're talking about. We're not talking about sex discrimination in any particular level within a job. Um, Isabel Oakeshott. Well, I mean, of course, men and women who are doing exactly the same job should be paid exactly the same for it. So if you're stacking shelves or you're teaching a, a classroom of pupils, then, of course, that's easily measured and quantifiable, and that's very simple to deal with. I think the difficulty comes in, um, and it's always been a problem with uh, careers like journalism, where you maybe you have the same title, but, you know, there's a market value attached to certain individuals who are bringing a different type of talent or flair to the role that they do. And, you know, I'm going to annoy the sisterhood a bit here and say that... I wasn't entirely convinced with the way Carrie Gracie handled this. Um, I felt that it was rather strange to hear her complaining about the backlash she faced within the organisation after publicly uh, embarrassing the BBC over her pay. I just couldn't really think of any other organisation uh, or company where you, know, you would go out as an employee and publicly embarrass your bosses and then find that all was hunky-dory the next day when you went back to work. So I think there are different ways of handling these things. Clearly, it is an extremely important issue, but I don't think it's as black and white as it's sometimes presented. Just, just to read out a few of the tweets until I bring David in. Um, having the same job title does not necessarily mean either that the responsibilities are the same or that the work is of equal value. Well, absolutely. Um, and then in relation, I think, to the Conservative or MPs, uh, they're paying their wives, question mark, explaining why the women are paid more than the men. The law is equal pay for work of equal value, as we know, um, and another agrees with Molly, you said ten times the lowest wage, but we'll fix it at five times, not ten. Um, David, David Blunkett. Well, I'm, I'm not going anywhere near what Conservative MPs do or don't do. Um, uh, <laughs> uh, what I would say is that it's a complex matter. There, there are teachers in this audience, I imagine, from this school who teach the same pupils in the same classrooms who are played differentially. They're paid differentially because they're on scales, because of the point in time that they're in their teaching profession. We introduced all those years ago, the opportunity to go right through with advanced skills teachers, which have been changed since, but it gave people the chance to stay in the classroom, but actually go up the scale, not differentially on gender, but on experience and responsibility, and you're always going to get that. So to, to go back to the question, transparency is crucial, but not just for the BBC, 
but for all organisations. You see, James, other major um, outlets aren't being forced by the government to publish their uh, pay gap, their gender gap. And the BBC were picked out originally by a number of newspapers because they wanted to have a go at the BBC, not because they love equality between uh, the men and women. And we should be absolutely clear about that. So, yeah, David, let's forgive me, it, David, forgive yeah. me. Uh, I may be wrong and open to correction, but I had thought that all large companies have to report their gender pay there, there gap is, by there, 2018, in, April in, this in year. Their, in their annual report, there is a, a, a basic requirement. It's nowhere near what's been required of the BBC to publish separately. The BBC were picked out specifically, were they not, Jonathan? Correct me, because you work for it and I don't. From time um, to time. Uh, about it, but they were picked out. And, and what it's done is raise the issue very strongly. What I really object to, and it's happening across the board, is to have picked out the Prime Minister's salary and then benchmark everyone else against it. Because Gordon Brown reduced the Prime Minister's salary by what the equivalent would be of about £70,000 now after nine years, uh, on a whim just before he departed uh, in 2010. <laughs> and here we are, and it keeps cropping up. We must have everybody below uh, the Prime Minister. Well, look, if you're on 20... If you're on, £15 an hour or £10 an hour or the minimum wage, you're going to be aggrieved at these salaries, whatever you're doing and feeling. It's going to increase the anger and the alienation. I get that. I was brought up on a council estate in the north of Sheffield. But actually, rationally, we need different benchmarks. And that means proper grading systems that have proper transparent reasons for them, and everybody knows why somebody's getting that salary. And at the moment, whether it's in the BBC or elsewhere, we don't know that, and the sooner we get it, the better. More generally, Molly Scott Cato would have the differential between the lowest paid and the highest paid uh, reduced to uh, um, 20 times, a ratio of 20 times, i.e. if you're on 20,000, you get 200,000 or whatever. Um, what, what, as a sort of old Labour, I nearly said socialist, old Labour, new Labour man, what would you set it at? Because I remember um, key figures in your... I was, old, I was key figures in your, new Labour. Yeah, I've been both. Both, I'm, exactly. I'm key, I, I, remember, I remember Lord Mandelson saying that he was, he was intensely relaxed about the filthy rich. That people don't well, seem quite know, so intensely relaxed nowadays, do they? Well, I, 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 I've always found it quite difficult to defend Peter, so don't ask me <laughs> to do it tonight. Um, I, I, think, I think that sensible, rational uh, benchmarks would be about 20 to 1, uh, not because I like it, and not because it feels fair, but because it's rational in terms of the international market we're bidding into, whether it's universities or whether it's the media, or importantly, uh, whether it's in uh, private enterprise. Thank you. I'll give you any answers, reminder of that number once again. Sometimes people say, why do you keep giving the number? It's because people often forget it, astonishingly. 03700 100444. May we please go to our next. Mary Herdman. The UK today raised aid for education in developing countries by 50% to £75 million per year. What does the panel think when this money would be better spent in our schools, the NHS and our armed forces? James Cleverley. 
Um, we heard in the news report just before we came to the programme that there was uh, violence in uh, Calais uh, because of uh, migrants trafficked by people smugglers. And um, there have been regularly concerns about migration, particularly illegal migration uh, and economic migration. One of the reasons why people run away from countries often in sub-Saharan Africa and in some of the poorest parts of the world is because the lives they have there are terrible. And the life we have here in the UK is, comparatively speaking, quite wonderful. Now, one of there are two things you can do about that. Um, you can secure your borders, and the government is doing uh, that, and we will be able to do that uh, perhaps more successfully once we leave the EU. The other thing you can do, and I argue you should do, is help to make sure that the countries that those people are running away from are safe and secure and economically viable. It is in our self-interest that we make the places that a number of these migrants come from less terrible because if they were better they don't need to be absolute paradise but if they were a little bit better considerably fewer of those people would feel the need to leave and come here it is the economically and and I think morally sustainable way to manage some of the very large scales of immigration that we might see if we see economic and social collapse in some of these other parts of the world so it is in our interest to spend a relatively modest amount of money to help lift some of the poorest people in the world out of poverty, and in doing so, reduce the pressure that we experience as they come to our country to share the economic benefit that we enjoy. Isabel Oakshot. Well, I think that the DFID budget is absolutely ludicrous. I think it is completely bloated. Uh, this is, stems back to David Cameron's uh, decision to stipulate in law how much uh, DFID should have to spend every year. And it is an absolute fact that DFID secretaries struggle to find projects enough worthy enough and legitimate enough to spend all that money. And this at a time when the armed forces are really struggling. You know, not a day goes past where we don't see more evidence of the difficulty that they're having to make their budgets add up. So, I mean, I think there's a fairly simple solution to this. I think James is absolutely right. Of course, you know, we should be proud of uh, doing what we can for the developing countries and where we can give help. We should, but it's about proportion. I think we should repeal the 0.7% law. Uh, I think we should continue uh, having DFID. I mean, some conservatives that you speak to would actually scrap the department altogether. I wouldn't go that far, uh, but I think we should redistribute some of the budget, uh, probably between the MOD and the NHS. Molly Scott Caton. Well, I always take the opportunity to agree with the Conservative when I can, so I'm going to say I agree with what, what James said. I, I mean, that's very much my view of it. You know, um, although I have to say, if I can be a little bit more critical, it was a bit bizarre to put Priti Patel in charge of the um, development department when she said it should be abolished, so that was rather more questionable. But no, I think you're completely right in suggesting that you know, a lot of the, the problems that we face to do with migration and uh, a lot of the instability in the world is, is a result of the gross inequality, and particularly in the internet age when people are quite aware of how we live here and they compare that with their situation and they just feel that they want 
a, a piece of what we've got, and why shouldn't they? And that's why the pressure for equality is much stronger now that there's much better information, and if people cannot have decent lives at home, then the, the inclination will be there to move. I work a lot on, on tax avoidance, and so um, I realise how much money is being drained out of some of the poorest countries in the world through international flows of money. And since the 1970s, African countries have lost about a trillion dollars a year in terms of money that should have been paid in tax, which is just drained out through wealthy people um, moving their money abroad. And that compares with a, a debt burden that they have at the moment of 200 billion. So you can see that these countries are not being given a fair chance to really make the advances they need to make. And we had a, had a guy from African Tax Justice Network come and talk to us in the European Parliament. And he said, don't you think I want to see our countries succeed? Do you think I want to see our young people leaving? And, you know, I think it's, it's partly the way the global economy works and where the power is in that global economy that undermines these countries and forces their young people and some of their best people to move elsewhere to seek to improve their lives. And let's feel a little bit proud of the investment we're, we're putting into those countries. I mean, we're, we're providing education so that young people can have a brighter future. We're providing services for women so they can become empowered and control, control their own fertility. We're also providing some very important um, investment in green infrastructure so that countries can actually move through um, the green energy transition sometimes more rapidly than we can and help to tackle climate change. So I think we should congratulate David Cameron on making that commitment and feel proud of the investment we're making in some of the most vulnerable countries in the world. David Blunkett. Well, not surprisingly, I, I actually agree with that. I, I think at the end of what you said, Isabel, just to make sure that you can get it on the record... I think you meant DFID budget to the NHS, not the MOD. I might have misheard no, you. I meant that DFID's budget should be redistributed. I didn't say we yeah. should get rid of DFID, but I thought that some of it should go to the armed okay. forces. Okay, so I'm, I'm clear on that. I thought you were like Boris and wanted everything to go into the NHS. But No, uh, but I would say for Boris, on Boris's part, I mean, the Foreign Office budget is something less than £2 billion. I mean, that is just ridiculous at the moment, a point where we are leaving the EU. We well, need to be they've, projecting... They've just raised another 400 million by selling off the, uh, the embassy in Thailand so they'll be a bit better off uh, from that. Back, back to the question. Um, global, global programme for education and the global campaign for education that underpinned it is one of the most important and most critical elements of allowing people self-determination and to be able to thrive and prosper themselves. It's the greatest way of lifting them out of needing DFID budgets or international aid in the future. It means people understanding how they themselves can develop their agriculture, how they can engage with world trade, how they can not have to rely on the Chinese in the future who will occupy any territory that we globally, internationally, decide to leave behind because that's what the Chinese are doing. It is so short-sighted to withdraw money from positive things that change the life chances of people across the world, who, incidentally, we will need to sell to, won't we, when we are outside the European Union. You can't sell to people who are poverty-stricken. You've been taken to task by the other three panellists on this. Quick response, Isabel Oakeshott. Well, we won't be selling anything to anybody if we don't have a decent education system that breeds a new generation of entrepreneurs. But what about the general point that by Why the that, that resource... cutting the education budget? That's the real question. Well, Isabel. maybe because too much money is going into DFID. 
Well, we'll, God we'll, bless we'll you. leave. Yeah. We'll we'll leave that Is there. That as good as you can do. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> we we should remind you that Julian Warwick will be presenting any answers. And the number is still 03700 100 444. And we shall go to our next, please. Um, Raman Dango. If we're old enough to serve our country at 16, 17, why do we not have the right to vote? May I be impertinent and ask you... <laughs> you look as if you... Forgive me, you look as if you may be around that age. You may be 40, but I don't know. But you look as if you're around that age. How old are you? I just turned 18. You just turned 18? Yeah. Got you. Um, so why can't 16, 17-year-olds have the right to vote? They can marry, have a mortgage. They can set up a company, job. What's wrong with that? David Blunkett. I'm ambivalent. I'm, I'm sort of torn between wanting to see young people of 16 and 17 encouraged to engage, to be interested, to be committed, but deeply worried that if we don't have a, a decent... Uh, citizenship, democracy, education in our schools, which has been deteriorated considerably. We've not equipped 16 and 17 year olds uh, to be able to embrace the issues. Now, this is slightly contradictory because quite a lot of our adults haven't had citizenship and de democratic education either. Uh, and you can't base the right to vote on whether you're thick because, you know, we'd be back in the 19th century and the rights only based on property. So we are, you know, I do feel conflicted. And I think that the answer is that we do invest heavily uh, in ensuring that all school, all secondary schools teach citizenship. This is a committee recommendation that I hope will come out from the House of Lords in the spring, uh, that we get the Department for Education to take it seriously. And then we engage with the issues that... Um, so what are you saying? Sorry. Professor I, I... Tong had a look at this uh, 10 years ago. And in the end, even young people uh, were split on the issue as to whether they should have the vote or not. That, that may suggest that they're pretty well equipped to have the vote. They're well, at least they were to, rational to, to... about it. I'm trying to be rational, Jonathan. So. But, yeah, I, I, but you seem to be saying that as, once you've got education to a high enough level that you can be confident that 16-year-olds well, can make that fine judgment as to for which party they will vote, although at the moment they can make a fine judgment about whether or not to get married or whether or not uh, to go and serve in the armed forces... Um, then, then they can have the vote. Well, I haven't said that. We implied that, didn't you? No, I'm, I mean, I'm very happy to argue with, this, with you afterwards over a glass of wine. That would be absolutely fine. My, my line is very clear. I'm ambivalent about whether it's a, an immediately a good idea. I think it's more justifiable if every school teaches citizenship and does it well. Um, Isabel Oakeshott. Like David, I'm a bit ambivalent about this one. I don't really feel incredibly strongly about it. What I do want is more people, young or old, to be really engaged and excited by politics. And, you know, why not let's try it? Maybe we could go halfway house and, you know, reduce the voting age to 17. I think if we can get more people engaged in political debate, then that's all the better. Thank you. And Molly Scott-Cater. 
I think it's just clear that 16 and 17 year olds should be able to vote, you know, that you should be involved in important decisions about your future. You might say there's a little bit of a self-interest there because young people are more inclined to vote green than older people. But I would say in response to that, that, you know, responsibility, as we've seen in recent years, is not necessarily associated with age. So I don't think people can make a claim that, that young people are not responsible enough to have a vote. I, I agree with what David said. I think it's really important that young people are properly educated in citizenship in schools and also given the ability to debate. I mean, I, I used to teach in a university and I would encourage my students to debate. And for many of them, that was the first time they'd done that, actually engage with people in alternative ideas and respect those ideas, even when they didn't agree with them. And surely that's at the heart of, of what a democracy is. And I think school is a really good setting for helping people learn those skills, but also giving them responsibility, helping them, you know, giving them responsibility to run some parts of the school. We met a very nice prefect um, on our way in this evening, and I'm sure the prefects have some power in the school here, but I think school councils actually giving young people the chance to exercise power in their own lives as much as possible, trains James them then for a democratic role. Can I James, just... No, oh, I'm going to bring okay. James Cleverley. Um, with anything like this, you have got to have an arbitrary cut-off at some point. And I concede the fact there is, uh, you know, it is an arbitrary cut-off. I know people who are 14, 15, 16, who are incredibly engaged in politics. My two children are very, by, by virtue of the fact I'm their father, very engaged in politics. And I know some 40-year-olds who could not give a monkeys about politics. So there has to be an arbitrary cut-off. The international consensus is that 18 is at the age where you stop being a child. The UN Convention on the Rights of a Child defines a child as being someone under the age of 18. You say that you can serve the armed forces only with your parents' consent and you cannot choose to be sent to conflict. Uh, Jonathan, you said to get a mortgage. I'm not at all sure you can get a mortgage. You cannot enter into a legally binding contract uh, below the age of 18. You can't even take your own mobile phone contract out. And the last Labour government prevented 16 and 17-year-olds choosing to have sunbeds. So if we are suggesting, if we are suggesting that, um, uh, as, as David implied, that you know, smart, well-engaged uh, 16 and 17-year-olds should be allowed to have a vote, what about my 15-year-old boy? He is incredibly well-engaged, and if not him, why not his 13-year-old brother, who is just as engaged in politics? And if okay. those two, why not a 10-year-old or 12-year-old? It is unfair, our... but there has to be a cut-off, and I think 18 is the appropriate age. I, I, I'm going to ask our audience... Our audience here, by a show of hands, self-selecting audience, but a wide range of ages, as I detect. Um, 16-year-old votes. Who's in favour? Would you put your hands up? Who's against? There's a clear, significant majority against. Um, we will go to our next, please. Hi, Tom Kenny. Um, since losing her majority, is Theresa May still in power because she's the best person in the Conservative Party for the job? or because nobody else wants to risk their political career being in charge of Britain during the Brexit process? Isabel Oakeshott. Um, it, it's pretty much the second, let's be honest. Um, you know, all the talk at Westminster is who is going to be the next Prime Minister or at least the next leader of the Conservative Party. And it's quite unbelievable just how many people fancy their chances. But they don't fancy their chances now, and who can blame them? And, you know, I think for better or worse, Theresa May is... Uh, probably going to take us through to the end of the Brexit negotiations. And at that point, you know, 
you've heard her say she wants to carry on, she's not a quitter. I wouldn't give a great deal of credibility to that. Not that I think she's a quitter, but she's realistic. And I think as soon as Brexit has been negotiated, we get to the end of March next year, my goodness, the vultures are going to descend. Um, James Cleverly, I note that your predecessor as deputy chairman, Robert Helfen, has said that he wanted, from I put it, summarise it, from her less tortoise, more lion. And there's a lot more saying they need leadership from the backbenches of your party popping up all over the place on the airwaves all the time. <laughs> it's so worth, which is it? Is it no one else wants the job? It's worth remembering that people speculate about who the next Prime Minister is going to be pretty much from the day a Prime Minister comes in. The whole of Tony Blair's time as the Prime Minister, in all his pomp, the only topic of conversation in political circles was who was going to be next. It was going to be Gordon Brown. But when was that going to be? Uh, Theresa May is a remarkable politician. She was the most successful Home Secretary in the modern era. She was voted to be the leader of our, of our party. <laughs> sorry, sorry David. Sorry, David. She was voted to be the you leader of our party. You do include David Blunkett as being in the modern era, I hope. <laughs> I, I do, I do, I do. Certainly, certainly I do. Um, she was voted to be the leader of our party uh, overwhelmingly by MPs. Uh, she's hugely well-respected in the country. I talked to my constituents. They think she is a, a fantastic individual. She's a grafter. She's on top of the detail. She is absolutely the right person to lead the country and the party. That will have come as a, a, a really surprising answer to lots of people. Um, Molly, Scott, Cato, briefly. Now, I'm sorry, he's been nearly out of time. Now we know why he's deputy chair of the Tory party. Well, um, I, I mean, I heard Liam Fox say today that uh, he wishes more people saw Theresa May in, in this country, saw Theresa May the way foreign leaders do. And I have to say, I'm not sure he would be very happy with that, because I obviously hear a lot of views about Theresa May in, from other European politicians. And they're deeply concerned about her position, and they're deeply concerned. The, the question I hear most often is, what on earth is happening to your country? And I think Theresa May, it's not, it's not her failure. It's the failure of the Conservative Party, which is utterly divided and not governing the country, not capable of governing the country because of the internal divisions. And I think this is really doing damage to our reputation, which was, was very strong. And there is no hostility in this view. It, it actually demonstrates a great deal of concern for us and a great deal of affection for us. But, I mean... Yeah, I think there's concern about what's happening with Theresa May. And just on a personal level, I think it's awful to see her being there, almost being tortured with this opposition between the two sides of her party. And to be honest, I think, I mean, I think she's a living exponent of the adage, be careful what you wish for. Briefly, I'm afraid, David. Very briefly. When I was a child, I kept tortoises. They moved faster than this government. Um, <laughs> and, and if I were a Conservative, and God, thank goodness I'm not... Uh, and I was faced with Jacob Rees-Mogg, Boris Johnson or Theresa May, I think I'd have to go for Theresa. (laughs) Good night. (laughs) That's your final word, and nearly our final word. Um, We don't have time for for answers to this question, which is a Twitter question, but you maybe want to answer it on on hashtag or on Twitter. What gift should David Davis take to his meeting with Michel Barnier on Monday, was the question. Leave you pondering that um, because we have to leave Ormiston Bushfield Academy in Peterborough. Next week, we are going to be in Newbury, in fact, at the Mary Hare School for the Death, with, amongst others, the Conservative peer and Times journalist Lord Finkelstein, Sal Brinton, who's president of the Liberal Democrats, and Henry Bolton, who is, at the moment, the leader of the UK Independence Party, UKIP. <laughs> and there'll be someone else as well, I'm quite sure, from the government, we hope. Um, from here, goodbye.
I hope you enjoyed any questions this week. To find out more about the programme or how you can get us to come to your area, then go to the BBC Radio 4 website and search for any questions.